0: The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, January 8th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Peska. Yeah, it's January 8th. I said January 8th. Surprising then that I'm even here at work because to quote Gary Busey from DC Cab. I don't work
1: on January the 8th because that's Elvis's birthday.
0: And then we cut to a ragtag group of devil-may-care cabbies led by Mr. T, who's doing the funky chicken. Well, the bottom half of him is doing the funky chicken. The top half is all menace. He still is pitying fools. DC Cab, it was the logical extension of the slob versus snob comedy. We had Animal House, ragtag group of pledges. We had Police Academy, ragtag group of police recruits. DC Cab, a ragtag group of cabbies. Yeah, it was a different time. We called it. 1983 on the show today we play a little is that bullshit with maria konnikova the topic whispery soothing tingles and we'll keep the whisper at full roar in the spiel when we debut our line of other nfl erotica but first the u.s has been at war for a while which is not something that happens when you're winning The United States has been in a continuous state of war over the last 13 years. That is the sort of fact that most informed Americans know, but most informed Americans don't feel. That's how far removed the public is from the military. Now writing in The Atlantic, James Fallows has addressed this, and in fact has addressed aspects of chicken hawk politics, chicken hawk economics, and really chicken hawk culture. The name of the article is The Tragedy of the American Military. Jim Fallows joins me now. Hello. Hello,
2: Mike. Thanks for having me on here.
0: So as the dollars rise, the amount, the number of people in the military shrink or shrink as compared to most people. You know, as you point out in the piece, more Americans know a farmer, someone actually living and working on a farm, than know a member of the military. Even a couple generations ago, this was unthinkable. What are the consequences of that?
2: The consequences, I argue, are are that, you know... Democratic politics depends on people feeling the impact of decisions they make. If we make decisions about schools or roads or the police system or the medical system, in one way or another, most people feel the effects of that. Since so very small a percentage of the American public is directly involved in the military, it's it's about a little under 1% of the public is is now involved. And everybody who served in combat in Iraq and Afghanistan the past dozen years taken together are about three-quarters of 1% of the public. Since there is so little feedback between the decisions we either make consciously or passively approve about military engagements and the way most of us live – I think these decisions are made more cavalierly, more sloppily, more stupidly, and more destructively than they would be otherwise.
0: And if we look at who might be certainly President Obama's no military experience. And if we look at who might be president next, although Hillary Clinton claims she tried to join or at least inquired as to joining the Marines when she was 27, and I think a law professor in Arkansas, let's put that aside, on the Republican side, Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, Rand Paul, Scott Walker, Chris Christie, Ted Cruz, these are the top. Candidates for the nomination. No military experience. Rick Perry was in the Air Force, but Mike Huckabee, Paul Ryan, Bobby Jindal, Rick Santorum. We're not going to get another president with military experience. We're just not.
2: Uh, Unless Jim Webb should uh, pull an upset win.
0: Yeah, who is uh, the <laughs> former senator from Virginia who very much is running a military experience. But the consequence of that, it is odd because normally when there is an unknown or something becomes removed from our experience, you know, we become suspicious of it or even oppositional to it. But it does seem, and you chronicle, that with the military, we've almost um, established a hagiographic relationship to it.
2: You and I have discussed before this wonderful novel from a couple years ago called Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk by by Ben Fountain. And and it was about the ceremony that's become sort of the the central symbol of America's relationship with, with the military. The, the book, of course, which we'll encourage all listeners to go go read, is about about this Army squad that is really badly shot up in Iraq. They're flown back to the U.S. for this uh, to be put on the the field during the halftime of Dallas Cowboys Thanksgiving Day Thanksgiving Night football game, and then sent right back to Iraq. And what it symbolizes is we love the military but don't want to think about them. So we will thank you for your service, and we'll say you're a hero, and then we're not going to pay any attention to uh, where we send you to be in war, about how the Veterans Administration works, et cetera, et cetera. So yes, yes, there is, uh, I think I have the line of the piece that we're willing to do anything for our military except take it seriously.
0: Yeah, and sometimes to offer corrections, and sometimes to tell military leaders you're not doing a good job. We seem incapable, the civilian leaders seem incapable of doing that to the military leaders, and you even document the times when the military leaders have removed themselves, but no civilian
2: leader would dare do that. Uh, Right. And and in early chapters of American history where there was some greater familiarity uh, with the public as a whole and its military culture, people understood that the military, like any other part of our society, has competent people and incompetent people and good people and bad people. And you could make those sorts of distinctions without feeling as if you were some way impugning the honor or the, the heroism of those who serve. And so uh, President Eisenhower would would uh, remove commanders. President Truman uh, very famously did that. Even uh, President Kennedy, Kennedy. The two most famous cases of generals being removed from command in recent times are General Petraeus, who had to leave the CIA because of a sexual misbehavior issue, and General McChrystal, who had to leave Afghanistan because of a, a press leak issue, as opposed to the many commanders in Iraq who made grievous mistakes of military competence. But we don't pay enough attention now to judge military leaders with the same thoroughness we would people running school systems or even doctors. Yeah. So I've
0: read your piece. I've read Daniel Bulger's Why We Lost and heard him be interviewed. He's the former general who wrote a book, his inside account of Iraq and Afghanistan. And as the title would indicate, he thinks we lost. My take is. The main reason we lost is that our definition of winning is almost impossible. And I don't know if Alexander the Great or Genghis Khan could be counted as a winner if they played by the rules that the United States does. In terms of not just defeating the bad guy and replacing the other government, but sustaining an ongoing society that approaches democracy.
2: I agree. And so, so my essential critique of the last 12 or 13 years is, of course, there were some military failures of execution and there were some successes, too. But this was a gigantic strategic error of conception in that what was a winnable goal? After the nine eleven attacks, from my point of view, was number one, having a short burst of activity in Afghanistan to drive out the Taliban, to drive out al-Qaeda, to get rid of Osama bin Laden, which would have been possible in the fall of 2001 uh, if, if attention hadn't been directed towards, uh, towards Iraq or uh, misdirected towards Iraq. But the ongoing efforts to overthrow Saddam Hussein and put Iraq back together to do whatever is happening in Afghanistan – To my conception and that of, I think, most military uh, strategists, these were unwinnable wars. So, So the consequence of a chicken hawk society, I argue, is that we send these troops, this tiny fraction of our people, to do things that are impossible.
0: Yeah. And we could win every battle. We didn't win every battle, but we you know, we have such superior firepower. We have such superior technology. We have such superior, you know, we maybe don't even think about it, but when our soldiers get shot, they get life saving measures that soldiers, even in the Vietnam era, would, um, well, they literally did die for. So it's just such an imbalance in terms of fighting the war. It's just the question of winning the peace. And then when, if we were, define, winning the peace as a part of winning the war, I wonder if we can
2: ever win a war. It means we should be much more careful in choosing which ones we undertake. And, and two things that what you're, I agree with what you say and two things it makes me think of. One is it's interesting that the U.S. Air Force, with its wonderful fighter planes, it never engages in air combat anymore. That's because nobody will fight it. Right. You know, every, the whole entire rest of the world knows they can't stand up against the U.S. Air Force. So they just find other ways to get what they want done. The other is a comment that a North uh, Vietnamese general made at the end of the Vietnam, Vietnam War where some American official came over and said, you know, I don't really understand this. You never beat us in any of these individual battles. And the North Vietnamese guy said, that's true and irrelevant. Yeah. Which is the case with a lot of these battles the last dozen years.
0: James Fallows has written a sprawling new article that makes the case, well, listen to the title, The Tragedy of the American Military. Thanks so much. Thank you, Mike. Join the writers and editors behind Outward Slate's LGBTQ blog for an evening of queer conversation about the latest gay news, culture, and controversy. It's happening Tuesday, February 3rd at City Winery in New York. Slate's J. Brian Lauder, Mark Joseph Stern, and June Thomas will share the stage with actress and singer Leah Delaria, who plays Big Boo on Orange is the New Black. And at the end of the evening, audience members will have the opportunity to pose their very own Ask a Homo questions. Again, that's Tuesday, February 3rd at City Winery in New York. For more information, go to Slate.com, Outward, NYC. A claim is made, a claim is rebutted, a claim is advanced once more. Then it may be ignored, or gradually it becomes sort of a background noise. We accept it, we don't even hear it. But when the claim is scientific, quasi or otherwise, we here at The Gist have a way of gauging it. We are sensitive to the sound of science, and our chief audiologist is Maria Konnikova. Maria writes for The New Yorker about science. Does she have a PhD in behavioral science? She does. She does. That's not bullshit. But then she comes on the just to play, is that bullshit? And today, our issue is about sound sensitivity, good and bad, Maria. Yes. what What is that spectrum?
1: So we have a wide range of sound sensitivities. Where, you know, you have normal people who say, oh, my God, you know, the sound of nails on a chalkboard. Yes. It's awful. I think we can all agree on that. Yeah. And then you have these two extremes. At one extreme, you have people who really, really can't stand it. They don't need the sound of nails on a chalkboard. It can be something like a child screaming. Mm-hmm. Or it can be something like their, you know, mother eating next to them, eating right. dinner.
0: So this would be something at like the same decibel level and frequency Ex- as any other sound, but some sounds drive them batty and some Exactly.
1: And that's called hyperacusis.
0: Hyperacusis.
1: Mm-hmm. So which, hypersensitivity which... to sound, acusis from acoustics. Okay. And we have the other end of the spectrum where you really, really are driven crazy by sounds, but in a good way. <laughs> That is called ASMR, or Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response. Mm -hmm. That term, by the way, didn't exist until a few years ago, and it was coined by a community of people on the Internet who feel like they experience this sensation. So they created a website, and they dubbed themselves ASMR. I can't really, you you wouldn't really call them sufferers, would you?
0: No. (laughs)
1: ASMR lovers.
0: Revelers. Revelers, yes. And the kind of sounds that the ASMR crowd likes, I guess different people say they respond to different things. But before we started, we started watching a series of videos that are a lot. They borrow heavily from the uh, soft porn genre. They're about whispering and maybe some accents and touching soft things. Or at least Stroking. Hear, yeah, hearing the sound of soft things being touched.
1: Hello everyone. It's me, Heather Feather. Hi guys. I think this is one of the most common triggers. So I'm going to just come in really close to you. And today I'm going to be washing your hair. Today, I wanted to show you another tutorial on how to fold towels. I know it's been a long time since we've spent some time together. When
0: you touch it,
1: it moves.
2: It's called Stick point. It has movement that keeps going.
1: Because I love the sound of gloves. Let's see if you're symmetrical so interesting, because when I tried to actually look up the scientific literature on this, people were trying to figure out, well, what is ASMR? Because scientists were really baffled. They'd never heard it. Suddenly, this very scientific-sounding term is coined, so they start wondering, well, how do you describe it? And they found that there's really very little consistency. People will describe it as a tickling sensation Mm -hmm. or a tingling sensation. And they know it's positive, but they can't verbalize it. They just say, you know, you either experience it or you don't. There is one interesting study that I found that surveyed some 300 people, give or take, who said that they experienced ASMR, and they recruited them through this ASMR website. And they tried to gauge, you know, well, what are the characteristics of this? Is there anything that unites all of them? And so they had different sounds like, you know whispering for instance whispering, yes. yeah female, female female whispering usually right. and they found that a lot of things like soft sounds like the sound of Stroking, stroking those kinds of gestures too so it's not it's not on only auditory the reason that you don't have tapes of yeah. ASMR is they can't be elicited just by sound it's this touch sound intermingling
0: and looking at the uh, pretty lady in the video right. who shot in soft focus and I guess to be fair like there are a lot of grammar videos out there and they're frequently narrated by comely young women because comely young hey wait a minute I've watched TV comely <laughs> young women are everywhere but I think there's something else going on here? I
1: think so, too. I I definitely think so, too. Just because, you know, we can make a few hypotheses. We can say, okay, it's a feeling that's elicited by touch. That's actually been well documented. So Mm -hmm. you have, you know, from the animal kingdom, you have monkeys who groom each other. And that is one of the most studied primate phenomena. It's the way that they bond. Grooming It releases endorphins. It's really a pleasant, pleasant feeling. We know that if I actually stroke you, Mm -hmm. if I actually, you know, massage your head, some people say that the first time they experienced this was at a hair salon getting Mm -hmm. their hair washed. That's the first time they've experienced ASMR. But that feeling is very easy to understand because, you know, you're getting a massage. It's kind of a a pleasant, well-documented sensation. Then you have the other explanation where it's just hearing. It's auditory. So certain sounds, okay, I guess if certain sounds annoy you, certain sounds you can really love. You know, for instance, I love Chopin. <laughs> Chopin makes me makes me feel great. I don't know if I would
0: describe it as tingly. But well, what about if Chopin, instead of playing the piano, gently rubbed a towel or, <laughs> or folded some doily?
1: See, I, I find that, you know, there's really no good reason why there, that should be the case. There is one possibility. So this guy who who did the survey of all of the ASMR people found that about 5% of them were synesthetes. Mm-hmm. And people who have synesthesia, that's very well studied, very well documented um, for over 100 years, which is basically your brain is wired differently from other people. There are more intersensory connections so that, for instance, when you... Um, hear certain sounds, you also see certain colors. Or when you know you eat pasta, you see triangles. It's a, it's really weird.
0: Or wagon wheels, depending. Or on Or wagon shape wheels, of the, yes, the exactly,
1: yeah. exactly. Pasta. So, so people actually do have these very physical experiences, and if you put them in a scanner, you'll see that the areas of their brains that light up are very different from the areas of normal people. I can see how those people might get certain stimulation from sounds because that's what happens to them all the time. But I think that's the exception not the rule.
0: And I do think that if this really were a sound thing the content wouldn't be important. In fact you could listen to it in a different language. But because the actual words seem to be important like you couldn't do the breathy whispering but talking about spoiled sardines that wouldn't get any (laughs) ASMR people off or whatever the sensitive way to say that is. So therefore it seems to be tied up with something other than just your the, the, the sound sensory input.
1: I, I couldn't agree more and there is, you know, another thing I came across um, when I was researching this is this child nursery rhyme yeah. that seems to describe something similar, but that rhyme is all about touch, it's not about sound so I'm going to read it for you now in a non-whispery voice okay. just, just so that people can actually
0: hear it Let's cue the wind <laughs> chime to at least bring you in and set the tone
1: Dot, dot, line, line, spiders crawling up your spine, crack an egg, let it run, tight squeeze, cool breeze, now you've got the (laughs) shiveries. So the shiveries actually sound like a lot of people describe ASMR, and this is this child nursery rhyme from I don't know when. So clearly we do have an emotional connection with with certain types of touch. The question is, do we have any reason to believe yeah. that we can get the same sort of physical sensation from sound and not actual touch, but just the suggestion of touch, right. but only if presented by very specific people, Females, we'd like attractive between 20 and 30, closer to 20, would be more in the sweet spot. You know, if they have a foreign accent, that's great. And if they're stroking something, that's even better. Yeah. Um, You know, if that something looks like an ice cream cone, great.
0: Yeah. A puffiness of the lip, a uh, certain cut of the dress somehow also seems to correlate to the ASMR prompting. Yes. So my I... own
1: ASMR video was a flop.
0: No one no one wanted to listen. Then again, you did it in the voice of Ethel Merman, to be fair. <laughs> There's no ASMR like show ASMR. All right, so I will ask you this, Maria Konnikova, ASMR is that a very soft and luxuriant bullshit. It absolutely
1: is, Mike. It's bullshit. It's bullshit.
0: Ugh, tingles. <laughs> Maria Konakova writes for The New Yorker, plays Is That Bullshit with us. Thank you, Maria.
1: Thank you, Mike.
0: And now the spiel other NFL erotica so it's a big NFL weekend four games at play are the New England Patriots with their star tight end Rob Gronkowski recognized as one of the best players in the game but more importantly from a literary perspective the muse of the new book a Gronking to remember book one in the Rob Gronkowski erotica series by Lacey Noonan Well, Lacey Noonan's book has gotten a lot of attention. Rightly so. I hear it was shortlisted for the Man Te Teo Von Booker Prize. But do you think that's it? Do you think that they're going to have such a successful book as a Gronking to remember and just stop there? No, they are not. As you will read in Slate tomorrow, there is to be a new series of other NFL erotica. And here, right here, right now, on the gist, we have trailers for three of these new titles. So dim the lights pour some Chablis, lean back, and luxuriate in the newest offerings as we step inside the publishing house known as the Gridiron Boudoir. Lysander Stonepipe had but one love. She was Milena Chastington. But Milena's heart was with another. And his name was... Fuzzy Whitaker! Touchdown! The Scoundrel's Flame, The Fozzie Whitaker Story. And then there's this one. Could any woman tame him? Would any woman know the enveloping embrace of his 50-50 polycotton blend? New from the tender smash-mouth imprint of gridiron boudoir books comes the story of a forbidden romance between a seasoned career woman who had sworn off all impulse and a gray hooded sweatshirt that rocked her world while staying under the salary cap. The hoodies touch. His press conferences were terse. That's that's really about it. But his touch was tender. Yeah, well, that's absolutely not true. Delilah McKenzie craved order and predictability until Bill Belichick's sweatshirt overloaded the zone and put seven players in the box that was her heart. He tampered with her defenses and destroyed the tapes that would prove it. Embers of desire grew into flames of passion and into a conflagration that no one had ever seen.
1: Like that's not an unprecedented situation.
0: Maybe not, but one woman trembled at the hoodie's touch.
1: Doesn't get any better than that.
0: And then finally, Ella Eau Claire played it safe. She drove a safe car, resided in a safe neighborhood, lived a safe life. But all that would change the day she risked it all. The day she placed a simple yellow piece of foam atop her flowing tresses.
2: Green Bay, Green Bay. Rapture. Rapture. rapture.
0: And soon offensive lineman Brian Bulaga was hers.
2: Wisconsin, Wisconsin desires. desires. He was a guard
0: who pulled the strings of her heart and awoke a passion in her she never knew. He was insatiable. She matched his every desire. They would make love on the heath. By the riverbank. In fact...
2: You could shoot him and put him up on that You could mount him up in your den. Look at the size of that head.
0: People questioned their love. People questioned her passion.
2: People questioned his arm length. It's only about 33 inches, and Robert line.
0: But there would be no question of... The Lineman's Lusts. These and other titles from the gridiron boudoir are available wherever scented candles and three bean dip are sold. And that's it for today's show. No one could tame just producer Andrea Salenzi. They could only stoke her Pro Tools passion. Joel Meyer is managing producer of Slate Podcasts, but no one could manage his wanton cravings, his yearnings that could only be described as marking territory through urinating, defecating, and scratching, rubbing, and biting trees. Andy Bowers was always seen as executive producer of Slate Podcasts, but on weekends he was known as the Scarlet Imposter. You can go to iTunes and subscribe to our podcast. You could sign up for our daily email at Slate.com/slash email. We are available through the app Yo. Download that app and then sign up for podcast. We're on Facebook.com slash podcast. Be you the podcasters harlot the shameless downloader or an audio on demand ecstasy seeker who has read all 168 books in the strangers kvetch series thank you for sharing in my dark desires we are a community we who know the forbidden path of the 1.5 speed button i release you from my tender embrace and thank you for listening
1: I'm Hannah Rosen. This week on the Double X Gab Fest we'll talk about the kid talking cure. Are you a failure if you don't talk to your toddlers enough? Find out on Thursday's Double X Gab Fest. Look for us in the Slate store on iTunes or at Slate.com slash podcasts.